0: You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Good morning, 3RRR Radio Therapy listeners. Welcome to our show. This is EpiPen, and I have to tell you, this is my first time at hosting the show, and I am so excited, a bit nervous, because Dr Mel is a bit nervous that I might do such a great job, he might not have a job next month. So look out, Mal. Um, Anyway, I'm very excited to say, I have to say that we're on 3RRR, 102.7 FM, and on today's show we have uh, Dr. Perry... Perry... I want to call her Natal, but she's got another pseudonym, Perry. Perry
1: Partum. Perry Good Partum. Good, Good morning. Good, morning. How are you?
0: Good, thank you. And we've got uh, Linda Hunt, who's all the way from Tasmania, who's come on the show. Good morning. Good morning. And we've got Sylvia Stewart, who's on the show as well. Hi there. <laughs> Hi there as well. And thank you, Kent, who's going to do the panel for us, because really. If you saw all these buttons and knobs, there's no way known I could do it. I'd be zooming around and like a fly on that machine there, Kent. So anyway, um, uh, uh, we've got a really good show for you today. So I might... Oh, I'm, what I was thinking of, because Sylvia's going to uh, talk... She's from Turning Point. And what I was thinking of is that, you know, one of the things she's going to touch on is gambling. And uh, there was a big horse race on Saturday and... Did that affect anybody here on the panel? Yes. yes. Why? Uh,
2: Why? uh, Well, not not in a dramatic way. (laughs) But there was some betting that took place in the family. Yes, bets were placed. And who was the winner of the... Oh, a hubby got a place, uh, 15-year-old nothing, and and the horse, who is which, come on. Oh, goodness me. Uh, I think we backed, oh, we backed a real love, but my 15-year-old son and I, because obviously I didn't let him place the bet. <laughs> uh, real love, I thought it was quite... Real love, is that real the name love. of the horse? That was the name of the horse. Oh. Well, well, I thought I'd let you know that it was
0: Jamaica. Jamaica? Oh, yes, Jamaica. Jama- Jamaica. J- Jamaica? Jamaica. Oh, I
2: don't know.
0: Anyway, not really. I didn't back it, so. We've got one gambler in the room, so maybe Sylvia can help out with uh, with uh, Linda's family issues.
2: Well, Linda,
3: <laughs> I guess first of all is um, I'd like to ask whether this is a regular thing in your family. Absolutely
2: not. So you're restricted- Oh, actually, in my family. <laughs> For me, No. Uh, Perhaps hubby does like a little bit of a flutter. He's been known to gamble a little bit. Not excessively. Cards.
0: Okay, so before we get launched into Sylvia's talk, I'm going to just quickly touch on catch catch up. So every week we, we touch on something that's happened during the week that's pricked our interest. And I'm sorry about that word because it's a bit of a faux pas because of the story I'm going to talk about. So... I don't know if you're aware that the week just gone is muck-up week or celebration week. So VCE students have finished their schooling, and I heard of a pretty interesting story that at one of the schools in Melbourne, the girls organised a stripper oh. for their for their breakfast. Oh
3: dear! Male or female? Was a
0: male stripper for some girls. And, um I was just appalled appalled at what, well this would have been in someone 's home, and um, it 's apparently the third year that this has happened, and someone said that the girl said it 's a tradition without even thinking, and parents would have allowed this and condoned it are yep, yeah, you, you sure oh, this
1: isn 't an urban myth, this sounds like an urban myth to me it 's a little bit like you know. When that couple goes out into the woods and there's this banging sound of to go. somebody goes to investigate and they come back and then someone's beheaded, and, you know, it doesn't sound real to me. That's the problem. I didn't
0: believe it, but it is true. They've got pictures of this guy cavorting around in a thong. For 17- and 18-year-old girls at a breakfast before their... It's on the Thursday and their last day is the Friday. Mm-hmm. I, I'm... Is everyone speechless? I am speechless, I am yes.
3: speechless, so perhaps Penny, um, if you, pen, you could have told us beforehand <laughs> <laughs> that this was going to be one of the topics. I'm surprised because I thought that there was a general move to um, away from muck-up day silliness and into more um bonding and more um sort of appreciative of their you know their schooling years and correct
0: and that is what is happening at the schools but what happens at home is off the school campus so the responsibilities are on the parents and the children and they are they might be 18 but they're still school kids but what's this mean about the sexualisation of kids and, you know, we were talking about labiaplasties before and what's happening to our young girls and the, what if the boys had a female stripper? I think a female, uh, yeah, female stripper, it's equally as bad, but... So I thought this morning when I was up at the crack of dawn doing my notes for today's show, I'd have a quick Google to see how common this was and lo and behold, there's only one other story. So it was at the Duchess of Cambridge's old, Cambridge's old school, Maryborough in Wilkshire, that organised a stripper on the school premises. They snuck this guy in, the schoolgirls snuck him in and there were young girls in the school... On the grounds, there were thirteen-year-olds, and this guy started dancing and taking off his gear, throwing his thong around. He didn't expose himself, but um, his name was Ross. And oh, they the,
2: got his name. The wow. film, yeah, the Great footage, detail. the footage went viral,
0: and the teachers were per- absolutely perplexed. And he was rushed off by security. But you know what what anyone any thoughts about what's happening
1: i have no thoughts Effie. you've completely blindsided me with this one yeah, well i think
0: that's i was speechless and i think i still am I, but i was disgusted to tell you the truth
3: so what's the focus on the stripping or on the dancing because i think that's a, you know that's a difference i think we can all appreciate some male dancing and some moves happening Um, fully clothed
0: maybe Sylvia
3: but anyway
0: let's move on so anybody else got a bit of a catch-up or anything else that's topical
1: I want to speak briefly about cervical screening um, because there is a group in the Netherlands that that has provided some new guidelines for the frequency of cervical screening now I know that you've touched on this issue with regard to the Australian guidelines recently Epi but uh, I suppose around the world really our understanding of cervical screening and 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 our understanding of cervical cancer has been revolutionized by Sir Ian Fraser who obviously produced the Gardasil vaccine and that has made that has meant that millions of women will not die of cervical cancer so i think understanding more about how the human papilloma virus then leads to cervical cancer has helped us understand how frequently we need to screen and how screening might change when you know vaccines are widespread uh, and more recently it, it seems that Because we know that the HPV, the virus that causes most cervical cancer, takes about 10 years to go from infecting someone and for them to actually continue to harbour that infection to actually causing cytological changes in their cervix, we think that we don't need to screen quite as frequently as we did previously, particularly for women who are older and who don't have the HPV virus currently in their system. Um, So that's just, I think, something that's kind of... uh, a positive for a lot of women who don't really want to be screened every two years uh and particularly i think if you're over 40 uh in the netherlands they suggest that in fact you don't and you don't have hpv um then you only need to be screened every 10 years or so which is a really great thing for people who find that particular um examination somewhat uncomfortable,
0: uncomfortable. i know i said last time i was on the show it was like having a tooth extracted and it's not that bad
1: Oh, I, uh, I, it's, I it's,
3: it's
0: no, it's uncomfortable. But um, I think all the women around the table today have probably had several and it's just something that you do. I've even had to have colposcopies. Now, that's a different kettle of fish again because my mother took um, an oestrogen when she was pregnant with me. So I'm in a group of women for DES exposed that had a high risk of vaginal tumours. So nothing like um, a a pap smear.
2: Well, I think the alternative is much worse than the
1: procedure to perhaps prevent.
3: Correct, correct.
1: And now that I think from May next year, as you mentioned previously... women will only have to be screened every five years five
0: years that's right
1: unfortunately it's the same thing though i would have thought if they're screening for the hpv then surely they can do a blood test wouldn't that be nice well there are self um pap smear tests
0: so you can do them yourself but they're for special groups of women that um can uh, prove that they have trouble with having cervical smears so they insert a, a um a swab and um, they can do it themselves and pop it in a tube and send it off so culturally people that have cultural difficulties having cervical smears and that's a new thing it's called a solo pap test but stay tuned that I'm sure that will come in a bit more um, commonly
2: uh-huh. good to know
0: yeah
1: you're
2: listening to a podcast from community radio 3 triple R in Melbourne Australia
0: Okay, back to the show and now for some juicy um, speakers. uh, uh, I'm going to pass the microphone over to Sylvia Stewart and she will tell you a little bit about what she does and how long she's
3: been doing it for. Over to you, Sylvia. Thank you, Epi. So my name's Sylvia. I'm a um, social worker. I did my first social work placement at, um, at an organisation called um, Westad back in 1983, and um, and since then I have um, sort of maintained an interest in um, drug and alcohol and um, and and more recently gambling. Um, been a, a drug and alcohol and um, telephone online counsellor um, at Turning Point for the um, for the last 17 years. Wow, um, yes, long time. (laughs) Um, for people who don't know Turning Point um, has been around for um, about 20 years came about after the the, the big institutions around drug and alcohol were um, were closed down and and the Helpline has been part of that that service Um, for those who don't know Direct Line um, is a 24 hour, 7 day a week service and it is for people who want to talk to um, somebody around their own drug and alcohol, or somebody else's um, drug and alcohol issue. Um, so it's confidential and anonymous, and no question is um, is, is too silly. Um, so we um, we are non-judgmental, and we're here to um, to talk about anything. And um, along with the um, since the helpline. Um, Things have changed, obviously, and um, we now have a um, a big online presence. So there's a um, there's a website, um, directline.org.au, where you can go to to um, to look at the the pathway treatment services. So if you're not sure about how to um, gain. Face to face services or access to detox rehab, then um, then you can go. You can ring the one eight hundred triple eight two three six number, or you can go online to the direct line website. And we also have a counselling online, where you can go online and have a real time chat with um, with a trained counsellor. And we come from all different backgrounds. We're nurses, we're social workers, we're psychologists. Um, and are you all trained specifically to manage the calls? Yes, yes, We have a, um, a growing model of care, um, so it's becoming a little bit more structured, but the focus is on engagement, engagement always, so that the first thing is to um, generally bring down someone's level of distress if um, obviously these situations can be you know very worrying for, um, for people with the problems as well as those affected by it. And what words, how do you do that? Well, we will say, everyone has their own way of saying it, but it will be generally around, how can I help you? What is it that you'd like to get out of the call today? Um, Take a moment. Let's do some breathing if you you need to. We don't have a limit to the amount of time that that we're on a call. So I've been on calls for over an hour sometimes. Mm -hmm. So engagement is the most important thing. And um, you know what they're hoping to get out of the call. We'll do a um, a brief inter- intervention. So someone might say, "Look, I just uh, I've tried, but I just keep on drinking. I don't know what to do." And um, and we'll do some solution-focused sort of stuff. So um, and what know, if, what if, it, what if they're to- drunk when they ring in? Um, there's no. That's okay. Um, if they're, they're very drunk, well, we might suggest that they call back another time when they're not as inebriated, but um, we're generally pretty pretty nice. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what about non- non-English speaking
0: people? What happens there?
3: We can get interpreters straight away. Mm-hmm. So um, if someone has a, a minimal amount of English or they have a, a, um, a, a family member who doesn't speak um, English very well, then we will say they can get on the phone. And say, can we get a? Um, you know, my my father's Italian doesn't speak very good English, and um, we we've got a service that so we bring up, and we get a, an Italian interpreter. On mm-hmm. and, and what
0: what would be like a recent call? Could you give us an example of somebody calling in?
3: Okay, I had a um, a call recently of a um, of a woman whose daughter was um, was using ice. And um, the daughter was living in her unit. They, her and her husband, were working elsewhere and living elsewhere. And she was very concerned about the situation with um, with her daughter, as well as um, the. There was other people living there, and the place was getting trashed, and all the neighbours were complaining, and um, and you name it. And she wasn't able to talk to her own friends and family about it because of the stigma around, mm-hmm. obviously, around this. And um, and so we were able to. I was able to like reduce her fears a little bit or help her talk about her fears around her daughter's future and um the family's future was mum having a, an alcohol problem or what was no she, she wasn't she was just absolutely beside herself and mm-hmm. you know her whole life was um felt like just falling apart the whole family was just falling falling apart and um we were able to um she was able to um speak just, uh, 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 face all those fears really just um talk about exactly how she was feeling how she um you know she was able instead of having to be the strong mother and and wife for the rest of the family she was able to just talk about her fears for her daughter Mm -hmm. and um together we were able to i was able to um point her to some some websites that were that were helpful around um what ice is the for example um, that website it's um, it's you can get get to it through the um, through that direct line website that mm-hmm. I mentioned earlier. But you can, if you Google Australian Drug Foundation, um, they have they've that's where one of the links go to from from that other website. Mm-hmm. But it's very good information out there, factual information from a reputable source. So I was able to um to direct her there and talk to her about what the um, effects of ice are, the withdrawal, you know, how long it takes. You know, sort of generally, Um, and so we were able to talk about that. There's um, there's services, obviously. There's self help groups for families where they can um, learn about about the about what drugs is and what drugs are and how to communicate better and all that sort of thing. There's a helpline as well. And um, we were able to get a plan together, basically, Mm -hmm. just Mm -hmm. through more information.
2: So the idea behind direct line is is not necessarily that it replaces a a face to face encounter, but it complements it or perhaps streamlines. It's a very important part
3: of the whole treatment services for drug and alcohol. Um, So. People can ring up direct line, and I suggest that it is a good way, good way to start in in talking about what you would want to do about your own problem, or about somebody else's, because we we can talk to we can refer them to the um, to the public drug and alcohol services, which you, which are. For the last two years, it was um, that you go into intake assessment teams in your own area. So, if you live in Pasco Vale, for example, we'll put in Pasco Vale and we'll then give you the phone number to um, to to ring to um, to get in touch with that service. Depending on whether it's on the night or day, we can email, we can um, put you through, Um, but we can also talk about. So, there's free services around face-to-face counselling, detox, rehab, um, and then there's there's so much and then there's self-help groups and then there's um there's online support there is um we have a structured program six week six week program with a dedicated counselor where um you work through workbooks and that's like a commitment to to um reducing or stopping your drug and alcohol use mm-hmm.
0: and how do people find out about
3: direct line is it in gp clinics is there an ad or it's uh, well, i'll give you the number now it's one 800 236 and it is um it is in the phone book it's on the internet it's but would um, gps be able to advise people
0: i mean I, if i was drinking heavily how would i know that this was a line available to me
3: GPs know about it, yeah. but you can Google it or you can... Um, yeah, it's so you'd it's recognise been... that you might have a problem and you'd Google it and
1: yeah. this
0: would pop up, especially if you live in Melbourne? Yes.
1: Yeah. Can I ask a question, Sylvia? Um, so it's sort of a gateway to all these other services and you might be able to advise the caller then on what might be most suitable for them and give them options locally or elsewhere. Can I ask you a bit about your thoughts about, you know rehab and detox and those sorts of options that are available because there's been a lot of stuff in the news recently about how we don't have enough inpatient beds and I wonder if you could give us a sense of what kind of options do exist for people who call in direct line okay um one of the um the
3: most important things is that when people recognize that they have a problem um they the most important thing is to commit to making a change and to feel empowered around being able to um, to to do something about it, to um, um, cut down or stop or um, address it in some ways. And um, and often there is that denial, but once people make that commitment, then things can change straight away. Um, we can. We're there 24 hours. People can ring up every day if they want to. Um, once they have got their name down for, um, for treatment, whether it's a face-to-face or for assessment or to go into a detox, they can make changes from, you know, they can be looking at where their support is, what their goals are. And, and isn't um, Turning Point under
0: Eastern Health, so that's linked to hospital beds for detox? And yeah, I think you mentioned
3: that there might be a wait list. There is, but it's um, with the public services. Probably takes about two or three weeks to get into a detox, which is um, for about a week or so. So you know that is absolutely available for everybody. Um, then there is, I'd say, there is the um, the online support. There's the you know there's people have a lot of support even in their own communities and their own families. There's um, you know there is smart recovery groups, which are self help groups, and there's um, AA and NA. Um, what does it's it's the about reaching for? out Narcotics Anonymous mm-hmm. and Alcoholics Anonymous, which are 12-step programs.
1: Another question. Sorry, Sylvia. So does that mean that detox is not the only way to recover? Does it mean that, you know, you can kind of make a start or see what might suit you in your own personal circumstances? It doesn't necessarily mean going into hospital.
3: Absolutely. There isn't just... Um, um, detox isn't the only way to withdrawal. There is going to your GP, and GPs can use um, consultants that are available to just to health and welfare professionals. There is um, home-based withdrawal. There is outpatient withdrawal as well, and um, and then there is sort of slowly, slowly reducing. So, there it's not just about um, going into a um, into rehab. Thank you, thank you. So, and just before we wrap up,
0: uh, could you just do a little bit of gambling advice and help? Because I'm not sure Linda really needs it, but there are people out there, and given that we're heading into Melbourne Cup time um, and also the racing season, this is a big time to for people to deal with some of their gambling issues. I think you, you told me a story on your way in about um, somebody that was struggling and online gambling.
3: Okay, yes, there's... Um there's definitely a peak in calls to um to, to our service um around this time of year we have about twelve thousand calls every year around um around um, people's gambling and um of course this is a you know this is a huge time and one of the um i think everyone's probably a bit, little bit hard to avoid all the 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 market the marketing that the um the, the betting agencies do um just all year round but particularly sort of around this time of year and just how easy it is to um to get the the betting apps on your phone and um I had a call recently of a guy who was um just a young guy in his thirties who was looking after just babysitting his um you know three year old in the afternoon and um just sort of bored and betting and then trying to um, chase his losses ended up losing ten thousand dollars and um it's, which is obviously quite a serious sort of a problem, and and this is happening. This is happening everywhere. So, so we we were chatting before about um,
0: addictive personalities. So, do you think that person might have an addictive personality, or why didn't they stop? It, what was going on for them? Do you think, or even um, Dr. Perry might like to answer from a psychiatric point of view about addictive personalities? Are they do they exist?
3: I would say that. Um I think we could do a lot of debating around addictive personalities, but I think anyone can um, develop a problem with um, with with gambling or with with any um, any sort of behaviour, shopping, um, drug and alcohol, and it is really around the way our brains evolved. We have, um, you know, we're we're, we're wired for. Reward and motivation and um, you know excitement and these sorts of things and um, and we have the, the dopamine that's um, that's produced when we're um, you know when we're gambling or and and this just becomes a, a, a habitual thing and um, everyone people have different reasons for why they start gambling it might be with their friends for fun or to get get out of the home somewhere safe. You know, all sorts of reasons, but it becomes a problem when um, when people have that that trigger, and then that produces a, um, a an urge, a desire, and then you reward that that urge through the behaviour, and then it just goes round and round and round. And um, and the beauty of a service like um, Gamblers Help on gambling help online or gamblers Helpline is it's just about breaking that cycle that. Engaging your prefrontal cortex to control that that primitive part of the brain which has um, developed this um, this cycle mm-hmm. and it can happen to anyone mm-hmm. absolutely anybody mm-hmm. and this is why the pokies are so such a dangerous product such a don't get me started. <laughs> Do not get me started. <laughs> you know, my
0: son's turned 18 and he said, since he's turned 18 now, how, did, how does the world know that? But pop-ups for gambling. He said, Mum, I get them all the time. And mm-hmm. um, I, I said, have you been onto a website that's so you've, you know, triggered cookies?
2: And he said, no. And I, It might even just simply be from Facebook. Right. Facebook has his birth date. Yep. That information is shared. Yep.
3: Yeah. Yep. Nothing would surprise me. <laughs>
2: you are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 FM in Melbourne, Australia.
0: And now we're going to speak with Linda Hunt, who is a consumer of the public health system. And she's got a fascinating story, um, probably... If I was you, I'd probably get some t- some tissues out because it's a very moving story. Anyway, I'm sure Linda will fill you in. So over to you, Linda. Thank you. Thank
2: you. you. Epi, Is this as well? Epi? Epi. Thank you. Thank you. Well, look, it has been quite an extraordinary six weeks that my family has gone through. My 21-year-old son, Mitch, uh, presented to the emergency department in Hobart on the 3rd of September he had another bout of pneumonia it was his second for the year he deteriorated quite rapidly and I'll fill in some of the gaps but basically a month later he woke up in ICU at the Alfred in Melbourne one lung down having lost 14 kilos and escaping death basically so it was quite a dramatic time for our family Yes.
0: so um what happened? What he's always in Hyderabad, well, and he got pneumonia. They
2: don't really know what happened. Um, it he he went into acute respiratory distress within twenty four hours of being in intensive care. He was put straight into intensive care. Uh, he uh, deteriorated rapidly. They decided to. Sedate is and paralysed in Hobart. Yep, and initially placed him on a ventilator
0: because he wasn't breathing. Because was he was
2: struggling to breathe. Mm-hmm. He was w- struggling to so
0: breathe. So you were watching him gasping for air.
2: Well, look, the the interesting thing was, and this is this has been the pattern for the whole month that he was out. We would have days where things would improve, and we'd go home, and then we'd get a phone call, either in the middle of the night or the next morning, to say things had deteriorated. So that, that uh, Monday night, he went in on a Sunday. I left him on the Monday night. I'd been sitting with him, chatting with him. He was tired. He seemed to be getting better. I left him at about 7pm and I got a call at midnight to say he's deteriorated. We've had to knock him out, basically. So it's, it's often referred to as an induced coma because you can't be awake on a ventilator. It's horrific. It's horrific and it's uh, intubated he, he was intubated yeah. and he he was sitting up in bed about 9 30 and this is a, a, a description of his character <laughs> he was sitting up in bed at 9 30 with all of the staff around him struggling to breathe but was still on his mobile phone texting friends <laughs> two minutes before they put him under uh-huh. so he's uh, quite a tenacious little bloke so
0: mega doses of antibiotics, IV antibiotics, mega,
2: from the moment he he arrived in in the emergency department, mm-hmm. mega doses of antibiotics. They weren't sure what they were dealing with, and it's also very hard to look at a lung when you can't go inside. Even a CT scan or or X-rays and ultrasounds will only show the doctors so much. So he was put on the ventilator, things started to improve, it was looking good, and then we got another phone call that I think after a couple of days, he's deteriorated overnight, we've got no choice but to put him on a type of heart-lung machine, which is an ECMO, which stands for extracorporeal membranous oxygenation. Which Beautiful. Basically well done. <laughs> that is
0: not a hard thing to say. Yeah. Now you know why it's called ECMO. Uh, ECMO.
2: <laughs> so basically, extracorporeal out of body. So they put a very large tube into his uh, right groin into a major artery, take the blood out, run it through a machine which puts oxygen into it takes the carbon dioxide out puts it through another large uh, cannula spot in the left groin and into an artery which deposits the blood close to his heart. It basically meant they could rest his lungs completely whilst this in whatever it was uh was ravaging his lungs and by this point it wasn't only his uh right lung the bad lung which uh had shown signs of severe infection from the first moment he got in but the left lung had become infected as well Mm. So we went along with that for a few days and then he got worse and then they tried something else. They drained fluid from... He, he developed pleural effusion, which is fluid around the chest, which is, presents itself with a lot of problems. I think um, uh, we, at that point we'd probably only been asked once to sign a form to say, yes, you can do a potentially fatal procedure on your child which was the ecmo um we didn't have to sign up for the ecmo but when they drained the fluid from his chest because being on ecmo you are on blood thinners which means you have a very high risk of bleeding out and so that procedure was a very simple procedure but not for someone who's on blood thinners Mm -hmm. so we're still in hobart now still in hobart that seemed to go well uh great couple of days of improvement and so he
0: this was the tube into the his tube lung into draining the pleural effusion well,
2: yeah into the chest cavity chest. around the lung but then he deteriorated again and the the um the ICU uh, specialists in Hobart had been uh, liaising with the Alfred in Melbourne the whole time because the Alfred are the experts in ECMO uh, they produce most of the research they do all the training so they had been in in close contact with the alfred trying to work out the whole time what the best thing was for mitch and and they decided two weeks just over two weeks in that they needed to transfer him to the alfred because they had reached the capacity of of their expertise in hobart and what day is this linda so that was the monday they decided to do that day 10 15 15 day 15 so he's been out for 14 days and in that time, it's uh, you know, a lifeless child on a bed with dozens and dozens of tubes mm-hmm. coming out of him. And the next day, they flew him on a special plane. They, he was medically retrieved from Hobart. I'm and with you in the plane? I wasn't able to fit in because they have uh, weight restrictions. He was on a lot of equipment. I I cannot begin to explain how much equipment there was. And probably eight medical staff travelling with him because it was so dicey. And I actually found out the other day that there was a moment when they were landing in Melbourne where his... um, uh, Tube into his lungs. uh, blocked up with blood so they frantically
0: cleared that with <laughs> cleared suction that,
2: yes uh, so I, I uh, arrived here with my oldest son who lives in Melbourne but he had been down with us during this family drama and we arrived on a commercial flight, my husband and youngest son were still in Hobart uh, we arrived, things started to improve that was the Tuesday night uh, Wednesday, good day, they decided to bring him off ECMO. Thursday, great day. Again, uh, ECMO, it was still connected, but it wasn't uh, well, doing, doing his breathing at all. The ventilator was doing the breathing. It was great. Everything was looking on the up. They still didn't know what the infection was. He was still on a heap of broad-spectrum antibiotics. But then I left him Thursday night and yet again went in the next morning and he deteriorated overnight. He'd, he'd started to hemorrhage and uh, they needed to go in and and have a look. So again, we faced the prospect of him bleeding out um, because of having been on blood thinners for so long. And so, so what, I, what, I, I gave permission, yes, do that. And what were they proposing to do? They were proposing to... Uh, basically do a bronchoscopy so look at, try and get a better look at what was going on, go in and have a look, clean out the cavity try and see where the bleeding was coming from but directly before uh, the surgeon went in, he rang me and said look I'm not sure you completely understand what this surgery might mean because although yes we are doing those things, if we get in there and we can't stop the bleeding. We will have to remove the lung, which was a bit of a shock. And and how, how do you digest information like that? You don't. You don't. You do not digest information just like that.
0: get on with it. Hurry just, up. Yep, hurry up. Yep, please do it. Yep, whatever yep. you've got to do, do it. Yeah, just do, do it. it.
2: You know, I mean, if you have a choice between your, your child living or your child dying, you just go. You just sign on the line, mm-hmm. whatever, whatever it takes. So... <laughs> He, yeah, that's basically what happened They got in, it was a disaster So whatever Had been in his lung we, And we still don't know But a, a ma- massive Abscess had formed Which, and it was a, a um, uh, What was it? A, An it? Empyema um, So a necrotic Necrotic, that was the word they uh, used, wasn't that it? That was
0: the base of the lung had necrosed. Yeah, but necrosed. the empyema was this big, huge collection yes. in the pleural space. And so it
2: just, it just basically um, destroyed the lung. It, it was replaced with pus and the, the, the part of the lung that wasn't filled with the abscess was not able to get blood or oxygen to it, so mm-hmm. it had just started to rot. So they had no choice but to take the entire lung out and... Uh, and I, I I, did say, well, you know, can we look at... Like, what could you see when you got it out? And they said, nothing. It just disintegrated when we got it out. I mean, there was just nothing left. So it was really important to get it out so that it didn't infect the rest of the body.
0: And how scary do you think it, that operation was for the surgeon?
2: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I think... Um, look, I, I, th- I think on a number of levels it would be... Uh, incredibly challenging for them but that's what that's what they do isn't it and, and,
0: and sometimes you hear about surgeons having to be cowboys yeah they have to go in not knowing what they're not going to find
2: and just and having to make decisions on the run yeah. and that's exactly what they had to do mm-hmm. but the biggest issue once that happened was he was so ill he he was just hemorrhaging everywhere so um so they successfully removed the lung, but they couldn't stop the bleeding. And we got in to see him, my oldest son and I, just briefly for like two or three minutes when he got back from surgery. And they said, "Look, just very quickly, there were—I, I kid you not—there were fourteen, fifteen staff members just racing around trying to stabilize him. Him. Yeah, him, save him, and I." They said, you know, just in case we've got to rush him back to surgery, but now I know what they meant was just in case he dies. We want you to you know, be see able to see him. And we then went to the waiting room for a couple of hours and got back in and were told that look it's it's pretty dicey, you know, we cannot stop the bleeding. Um, we will just keep replacing the blood and there was a drain in his heart because it was the, the blood was pooling and putting pressure on his heart so they had to drain the blood but then replace it so the next so 12... you, you
0: mentioned blood replacement do you know how many units of yes, blood
2: uh 24 units
0: 24 units of blood in
2: less than 24 hours and do you know how many five times his body
0: so he's virtually and
2: five times yeah he's a new replaced. person yeah, yeah yeah he was a little bit freaked yesterday when he realised that it was somebody somebody else's blood, <laughs> <laughs> but that yeah it was was you can reassure him it's been heavily screened oh, yes, yes very good blood yes oh uh, well. You know, EpiPen and I did have a little bit of a joke at one point that, you know, I could have donated blood because we are both A-negative. Just, just as they did, you know, in the MASH days, just put the um, cannula into your in arm. me and straight into him. But, mm. you know, I would have passed out. But I would have done anything if I had to. But, uh, look, the 12 hours uh, was pretty dicey. We I got a phone call at 6.30 on Saturday morning to say, well, look, he's actually worse than he was last night. Um, we cannot stop the bleeding He's developed coagulopathy Which is an inability to clot, clot. Which <laughs> is not a good thing uh, Yeah, there's nothing, there is nothing more we can do The surgeons have decided not to go back in and operate Because there's not one source of bleeding There are multiple sources of bleeding So we, we pretty much resigned ourselves to losing Mitch that morning You did? Yeah, yeah. well Mark and I did We thought he was gone. Yeah. Um, And we went in a couple of hours later with the other boys and the bleeding had started to slow. Mm. And over the next 24 hours, he he pulled through.
0: And he's a 21-year-old male, so looking and caring for somebody that age is pretty optimistic. You have an optimistic feeling.
2: Absolutely. He came from a very good base. He's, He's fit. Healthy, perhaps you know, like most 21-year-olds, he you know he works hard and he plays hard. Those those habits now have to change, Mm -hmm. and that that will be hard. But he's very accepting of that. He
0: survived and he's well. He survived. And where is he now?
2: So he's still in the Alfred. He's in a ward. Tomorrow we are being medically transferred back to Hobart. So that's very exciting. And he, look, he's a skeleton, basically. He lost nearly 15 kilos. And he's very thin. He looks like he's just been released from Changi. Yeah.
0: So um, just a couple of questions before we move on to the next story. But um, so um, why did you stay by Mitch's bed 24-7?
2: Well, look, they wouldn't let me stay 24-7. They were quite adamant, both in Hobart and, and in Melbourne, that... You don't need to do that. But the the reason people do that is because they have a Hollywood notion that um, you stay by the patient's bedside. But that does not help the patient at all. It only helps the person. But for me, I... I, enjoyed is not the right word I needed to be there as much as I could mm-hmm. uh, to be physically close to him to to massage his feet or hands or clean his face or brush his hair it it helped me cope in, in a strange way I don't know why perhaps it's the mothering instinct whereas my husband and my two other sons really struggled to be in that room They mm-hmm. they struggled to see him in that way and so if people are listening to this story and they're
0: thinking, gosh, that woman has been through hell and back, and what could we do to help mm. somebody like you? What you know, What is it people want to do something? And there's been some fantastic supports that you've had. We,
2: uh, we have. It. it. Look, it has been incredible, and we could not have got through this without uh, an incredible amount of, of emotional, physical and financial support. What was the, the financial a support? So um, colleagues of mine in Hobart set up a, a fund, an online fund, and money was raised basically so we could continue to be in Melbourne not working um, uh, just covering all expenses mm-hmm. and Mitch said to me and and to mark yesterday, I could not have got through this without my family being here mm. and that was only once he'd woken up mm. yeah. three triple.
0: In the interest of really moving along, sorry, peripartum, but we've left you with only a tiny bit of time about an incredibly interesting story. So quick, go. Yep, I'll talk
1: really quickly. So (laughs) um, in brief, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the oral contraceptive pill because there was this very large study that was published at the end of last month, um, just trying to investigate what the links might be between taking the oral contraceptive pill and depression so i might just very very briefly talk a little bit more broadly about depression and sex hormones in general because it's useful to have a bit of a frame in your mind when you think about this particular issue so we know that um women have about twice the rate of depression as men do and that seems to happen all around the world and in lots of different linguistic and cultural contexts um and that's not true for people who um for kids and people who are prepubertal, So we think there might be a hormonal link. And certainly also there's been... There's a lot of anecdotal research which suggests that that might be true. We know that women um, who are... Um, going through menopause have mood changes at that time we know that people who are premenstrual have some mood changes and irritability at that time we also know that women who are pregnant and then in the postpartum have these mood fluctuations so we have always thought that there might be a connection between female sex hormones and depression or mood instability so uh, what these danish researchers did was they studied all the women in denmark because they have these fantastic data linkages don't they ever i'm very jealous uh and between the uh the years of 2000 and 2015 so all women aged between 15 and 34 and then uh they excluded all women who might have a pre-existing vulnerability to depression so who had previously been diagnosed with depression or who had previously been prescribed an antidepressant Uh, and then they identified those women who didn't have that history who then started taking the oral contraceptive pill they followed these women and saw if subsequently they were diagnosed with depression either in an inpatient or an outpatient clinic because all the clinics, mental health and other health clinics in Denmark are public and they also then uh, tested to see if there were any people who might have not been diagnosed with depression but then were were prescribed an antidepressant. So, very large study, about a million women actually in the final study. That
0: was my next question. Yeah. That's impressive.
1: (laughs) Very impressive. Quite a highly powered study. Um, And there were some interesting results. Um, I suppose uh, women who were using all kinds of hormone contraception were slightly more likely to be diagnosed with depression overall, so about a relative risk of 1.2 or 1.3, depending on what kind of oral contraceptive they were taking, a progesterone only or a combined contraceptive. However, women who used an implant or a patch were twice as likely to be diagnosed and women using a depot were three times as likely to be diagnosed with depression as women who were not on any kind of contraception. So I think that's the big news. So just tell us do, um, what a depot
0: Provera injection is. Is that a higher dose or?
1: Well, there are a lot of questions that are raised by this study. So not necessarily dose related. It might be about the kind of hormone that they use um, and it might also be about lots of other factors that they haven't really tested for social factors or cultural factors but I think that's a really big headline that might have gotten missed in the discussion about the oral contraceptive pill uh, because actually I don't think it's the oral contraceptive pill that is the big news in this study um, I just think that there's a lot more women who are prescribed to the oral contraceptive pill than who take you know patches or depots or, or implants The other thing that was really interesting about this study was the fact that young people are particularly vulnerable. So if they're looking at adolescents between the ages of 15 and 19, these women were nearly two times as likely if they were using the combined oral contraceptive pill to be diagnosed with depression or to take an antidepressant. And if they're taking the progesterone only pill, they were even more likely to be diagnosed with depression. So 2.2 times relative risk. Um, but again the much increased risk with the non-oral products like the patch or the implant or the depot um, was present in this young population as well that were three times more likely to actually be diagnosed with depression than any as anyone who wasn't on the oral contraceptive pill i know that i've got to stop talking um but i, I suppose that the the thing that i would take from this study is that um there are lots of reasons why people might take the pill and there are lots of very good reasons why contraception is really important um you know to maintain people's lifestyles and and their freedom of choice i think that in the individual you really need to think about how it will affect you particularly if you have a vulnerability to depression and you need to consult with someone if you need to minimize the risk that the oral contraceptive will impact on your mood Mm -hmm.
0: I think we need to talk about that one a bit more. Mm. It's a very interesting mm. topic. I'd really like to thank particularly Linda and Sylvia who given up a Sunday morning away from their families to spend some time for free, community-spirited women talking on radiotherapy. Thank you. Thank you.
3: I feel that if people are not too embarrassed to take off their clothes to wash the genitals with soap and water, literally with people they don't know and will never see again... The whole business still turns me off.
0: It all sounds a little sick to me.
3: Be a little tolerant. Triple R.
2: You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3 R, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.